Zechariah chapter 10. We uh, concluded last week in chapter 9, that last verse in chapter 9. I'll read it to you again to remind you what, what really is going on. But the Lord is now in this, uh, he's, he's, he's promising Israel, this is, I'm going to restore you, Israel. I, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. And this is how I'm going to do it. And he said, when I do it, there's going to be blessings. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be plenty of crops. There's going to be plenty of things. Your enemies will be trodden and, and uh, defeated. And, and there's going to be plenty of, of, of wonderful things because I'm restoring you back uh, to me. And, and one of those verses is found in Zechariah 9, 17. He says, for how great is thy, his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. Uh, then he continues in, in really chapter 10 and, and verse 1, and I find it interesting that the very first word in chapter 10 and verse 1 is the word ask. It's actually the only command in chapter 10. The Lord says, ask. He also uh, tells us, of course, in the New Testament, ask. He's referring to prayer. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit, but I want you to think for a second the promises that God is giving Zechariah right now in, in chapter 10 for the nation of Israel. These are promises. All of them are, really. There, there's a lot of promises. He kind of gives them the reason they're scattered. He, he gives them the reason that their Jerusalem has been ravaged and, and the reason that they're weak right now and they're sown among the en- enemies and they're scattered abroad like sheep without a shepherd and they've just been uh, decimated and they're weak. 50,000 Jews have only returned. And he said, here's the reason. And he gives it to us in, chapter two, or in, in verse 2. I want to preach with God's help this morning on prayer for promises. Prayer for promises. Zechariah 9, the theme, Zechariah is encouraging the weak and the fearful and the remnant with the truth that God helps those who are helpless. God helps those who are helpless who trust in Him. The theme in Zechariah chapter 10, he continues this theme in reminding the people of God and promises for Israel. He, if you notice in the middle of this chapter, there's a lot of I wills. I will strengthen. I will do. I will do these things. So he's commanding, the Lord is saying about verse number 6, he's saying, I will do these things. That's kind of the theme of this chapter. I have got a plan for you, Israel, God's people. And as I said earlier, the only command that we find from God is, is found in the very first word, ask. They were to ask God. Let's read that verse. Verse number one, the Bible says this, Ask ye of the Lord rain. In the time of the latter rain, so that the Lord shall make bright clouds, that's referring to lightning, and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. That word grass is referring to crops. Can't have crops without water. He's saying the, we're to ask God for, and, and it's going back to verse number 17 when he's referring to corn, the blessings of God. Corn, how do you have these stalks of corn? How do you have these things? You have them because of the rain. So the Lord sends the rain. They were to ask God for the rain. They were to ask God not only for physical rain, church, don't miss this. They were to ask God for spiritual rain. You say, why? Because the nation of Israel needed 
some spiritual rain. They were, they were decimated. They were weak. They were parched. People were scattered. And they were exhorted to ask God to send his spring rains to fulfill these promises. Can I just say this in prefacing the message? Prayer is God's appointed method. It's God's appointed method descending his reigns to fulfill the rest of these promises. There's 12 verses. Very simple. Really, really what you'll find is there's, there's two messages within one chapter. And I, I just want to walk through the text this morning and, and I feel like by the end of it, by verse number 12, we all are going to see what the Lord is showing us and showing Israel years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach for a few minutes. And Lord, I pray that you will bless, as you've promised to do, your word. And may it stir our hearts. May you help us. In Jesus' name, amen. God has promised abundant blessings for his people. We find that God has promised abundant abundant blessings for his people. Look with me in verse number two. The Bible says, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Look at verse 3. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds as I punished the goats for the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in battle, in the battle. See, these promises, they, they seem because we start out in verse number four, out of that is a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to, he's going to trod down the, the enemies of God. He's going to trodden down the enemies of Israel. He's going to raise them up as the Bible says in verse four, as the corner, uh, the chief cornerstone. This is a messianic promise, uh, the, the chief cornerstone. He's going to, uh, make them the nail, uh, that uh, all of the glory of the Father hangs upon according to Isaiah 22. He's going to bring them out of uh, this oppression. He's going to deliver them like a bow in the day of battle. This is the Lord in verse number four. But why do they need the Lord so desperately right now? Let's go back to verse number two. For the idols have spoken. The Jews were scattered they were weak. They, they were threatened by the enemies, by the Assyrians, and by everybody else around them. They were basically uh, fearful because these enemies would encroach upon them and attack them, and they were scattered, and they really were defenseless. They were also devastated. The land was ravaged. Remember this. Uh, they, uh, the walls are, are decimated. The, the, basically, the only thing standing really at this time was the temple that Haggai had preached about. And Zechariah basically uh, had preached to finish. And, and the walls are still down. They're still very open to attacks. They still need help from the Lord. Here's Zechariah. He predicts in verse number 10, he, he said that someday they will trample their enemies. Look at verse number 10 of Zechariah 10. He said, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for 
them. This is a promise that they might have, have thought that that was a little crazy. How in the world are we going to go from a scattered people to defeating all of the Assyrians, all of the Egyptians, all of the enemies of God in just eight verses? Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're in a place right here where you feel like, God, I need you to come through. I'm at the bottom. I'm at the very bottom of myself. I am at my wit's end. I can't do anything else. And God, how in the world are you going to take me from here and, and, and promise to bring me out of this? That seems so far away. Well, if that's the case and that's you, this text is for you this morning. And it would, and it's good news. This chapter is divided into two categories. The first five verses is God's deliverance from his enemies. The second of this chapter is verses 6 through 12. We see God's restoration and strength for his people. Now I want you to notice who the enemy is in Israel. Often we think the enemy is on the outside. We think the enemy is the one right over the wall or maybe in the next town or maybe in the next city or in the distant country, but the enemy that Israel dealt with was within. Notice who the enemies are. Church, stay with me. Verse number two, he said, For the idols have spoken vanity. These were false gods. False gods were an enemy. And where did they get the false gods from? They got the false gods from false prophets. They, they, that was an enemy. Hey, here's the second enemy. The second enemy was these leaders. The Bible calls them shepherds, but really refers to them in verse number three as goats. These are, uh, be, would be translated as a he goat, what would be a, a male goat, very stubborn, very rebellious. And he's saying these leaders are lording over the people. They are browbeating the people. They are, they are fleecing the flock. They're patting their pocket. These are enemies of God. False idols and corrupt leaders. I want to say something about false gods and false prophets, if you will let me. Israel did not fall into idolatry after the exile, the Babylonian exile, but that was actually the main reason for their exile. They stopped worshiping the true God and they started worshiping false gods. And guess what? You can read a lot of the Old Testament dealing with Israel. The reason that God uh, uh, chastised Israel, the reason that he uh, went after them. And often, I mean, you can start in the book of Exodus when Moses took them out of Egypt and and was going through the wilderness. You can read all of that. Hey, they were a stiff-necked people. It didn't take long for them to worship gods. Remember when Moses went to the Mount uh, Sinai? and he's, he's getting the, the letters, the, the tables from God, uh, the commandments, and he comes down and, and uh, he had been gone a long time, 40 days. He had, he had been with God, just him. Joshua went about halfway. And he says, as they're coming down the mountain, Joshua says, uh, it sounds like a, a war that's going on at the bottom of the mountain. He said, that's not war. That's That's a celebration. Moses comes down the mountain. What have they done? They had convinced Aaron to build a calf or make a calf. And and here they are worshiping a golden calf when Moses, the leader, is talking with God. That is how the children of Israel were. They they were kind of wishy-washy. One minute they worshiped God. The next minute they worshiped an idol. Well, here nothing has changed. In Zechariah chapter 10, they have gods, but these are called teraphim. It's different than Baal 
It was different than Ashtaroth. It was different than Dagon. It was different than all of these gods that they would worship in the middle of the city and bow. These were teraphim, which is a house god. These gods actually dwelt in their house. You can read more about teraphim in Genesis chapter 31 and, and 1 Samuel chapter 19. When Remember when Saul went to the witch of Endor and he's wanting to call up Samuel. I've kind of, that passage is, is pretty awesome, but it's also a little confusing. Saul, the king of Israel, a witch, and yet he, he's, he, she's calling up a prophet, Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in Israel. And, and here Saul is communicating with, with, with a prophet who's been dead through a witch. Hey, can I just say something about, about witchcraft? Uh, you know, I know we got young people in here today, and, and I will say this though, witchcraft and the occult is still very prevalent. Satan is just hiding it, he's, he's, he's kind of smoothing it over, he's disguising it, and what we think may be even godly, or maybe even uh, right, or maybe even uh, something spiritual, is actually something wicked. Israel began to worship these teraphim, these gods. And Zechariah warns the people, when the people prayed for rain and the Lord seemed to not hear, they turned to idols. And let me just say this, church, please don't miss this. We are no different. When we pray for something and it just seems like the Lord is not answering it the way that we want, guess what? We are so quick to turn to something else other than God. That's no more, that's no, no different than idolatry. Idolatry to me happens when we fail to submit to God, but instead we try to manipulate God to get what we want. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated. God becomes a servant to carry out our will. And often uh, Israel did this with, with the teraphim inside their house. They, were, uh, they would worship this little God or use this little God, kind of like a Ouija board, and they would try to determine God's will through a false God. So they were trying to determine what God wanted for them through some type of some little false god they had in their house. It was idolatry. They were used to determine uh, God's will through magic or occult practices. And can I give you a warning this morning? Whenever God puts you on hold, you are susceptible to turning to false gods and false teachers. There is a group, I say a group, it's a large growing group of false teachers that are on YouTube, the internet, Facebook, social media, and they are teaching all of this stuff about healing and all of this uh, uh, crazy, sensational stuff and everything behind every rock's a demon and, and, and we better look out and we better do this and it's all this crazy stuff. And guess what? People are buying into it. But you know who they prey on? People that are suffering. People that are suffering. Israel was suffering. It was of their own making, but they were suffering. Their, their land was dry. Their corn had been dried up. And, and we know God had promised those things, but yet they had never asked God. And that's why God is saying, Israel, I need you to ask. And yet they might would ask for a little while, and then they would turn to this idol 
False teachers prey upon God's people because they suffer. I'll say the selfish, domineering leaders, they're the enemies of God's people. False shepherds, uh, matter of fact, the word for this shepherd would be an anti-shepherd. They were the opposite of a compassionate, loving shepherd that we find in Psalms 23. Or we find David in the field. This was an opposite of the shepherd. Can I, can I help you describe, or let, let Ezekiel help you describe what a false shepherd looks like. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34, or if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, uh, by the time I start reading it, then just listen, because this will, this will enlighten you on what a false shepherd was in the day of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, this is Ezekiel, prophet, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds. Now this was the spiritual leaders of the day. The shepherds. They overseen the flock of Israel in a spiritual way. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, verse 3. You, you clothe, uh, ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost. Now notice, here's the reason, here's, here's the judgment. But with force and with cruelty... Have ye ruled them? So the shepherds of Israel, instead of leading with compassion and leading in a spiritual sense, they were cruel to the people. They they were cruel. They would fleece them. They They would pad their pockets. They would take advantage of the church. We know that's not good. We, we understand that even Peter uh, talks about hirelings and, and that the folks shouldn't lord over the people and, and shouldn't be domineering and, and dictatorial, if you will. But yet here in Israel, he refers to them as he-goats or goats. They're not sheep. They don't belong to God. Let me just say there's a promise of deliverance. Go back with me to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10. And I want you to start with me in verse number 3. There's a promise because he says, My anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them, notice this in the latter part of verse 3, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. So he actually says, these sheep, Israel, is going to be like mighty stallions. He calls them goodly horses in the day of battle. So from Judah will come the cornerstone. Now look, look at verse 4. Out of him, this is a messianic promise, out of him came forth the corner. 
Out of him, the nail. Out of him, the battle bow. Out of him, every oppressor together. So we see this in verse 4. He's referred to the cornerstone. We see that in Acts chapter 4. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2. We also see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He is the chief cornerstone. He is what holds it all together. He is the foundation. He's also the tent peg. If you go over to Isaiah 22, he is the nail or the tent peg as everything rests upon his shoulders. Everything, all of the glory of the Father rests upon his shoulders. He's the bow according to Psalms 110 verses 5 through 7 and Revelation 19 when he comes back. He's also the ruler. He's victorious. He's all sufficient according to Colossians chapter Number two, this here in verse number four is none other uh, than the Messiah. He's going to come. What is he? I'm going somewhere. What is he going to do? Well, look at verse number five. It says, and they shall be as mighty men and tread down their enemies. They're going to trample their enemies in the mire of the streets and in the battle And they shall fight, oh, here's the reason, because the Lord is with them. Amen? This is a promise for Israel. Hey, I know y'all have been oppressed. I know you've been defeated. I know that you have had enemies after enemies. You've been exiled. Babylon has ravaged the city. But one day... The Lord will strengthen you and you're going to trample your enemies in the streets and the riders on horses shall be confounded. Great, great verse. But here's the second part of chapter 10. And it's very encouraging because God promises to restore and strengthen His people. The Lord, you're going to see this many times, and I will strengthen. Look at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. Notice how many I wills. And I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to the place, uh, again to place them. And I will have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off. And I am the Lord their God and I or, or will hear them. So all of these wills, all of these I will do, found in verse number six, is, is, is prophetic, but it's a promise. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to give them strength. Where does strength come from? It comes from the Lord. They're going to defeat their enemies. You're not going to stay oppressed. And there's even better news. We find that in verse number 7. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through, through wine. And yea, their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And I will hiss for them. That word hiss means whistle or call for them. And they gather them as I've redeemed them. And they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people. Hang on to that. And I will sow them among the people. And they shall remember me in far countries. And they shall live with their children and turn again. Israel had been scattered. Israel had been scattered all over the Persian Empire. They'd been scattered all over, really, all over that area, just dispersed as sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries. 
and they shall live with their children and turn again. Uh, there's two practical observations about that, that text. He says, I will sow them. Where is he sowing them? Well, it looks like to me he sowed them in verse 10. He said, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt. So he had to sow them in Egypt in a far country in order to bring them out. He also in verse 10 said, I will bring them out of the land of Gilead. He said, I will gather them out of, out of Assyria and out of Lebanon. All of these people, the surrounding areas, all of them were really enemies of Israel. He said, but guess what? I've sowed you there, but I have a plan to bring you out. I'm going to bring you out. I thought about that sowing. There's some observations about sowing. Sometimes God uh, scatters his people in weakness so that they will look to him alone to save. I found that in verse number 9. He said, I will sow them among the people. They shall remember me in far countries. They shall live with their children and turn again. Egypt and Assyria. Lebanon. Gilead. God does not forget because he says, they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live with their children and turn again. God hasn't forgot about them. He sowed them in weakness. Often, church, stay with me. God often sows us in weakness so that we get to a place where we can look to him for strength. Israel needed to get to a place where they were at the end of themselves. Cast out all the idols. Them idols ain't done one thing for us except bring a curse on us. Cast out all the shepherds. God's going to deliver us from these shepherds. Cast out all these goats and all of these things that have become enemies. And God, when there's nothing else left, we look to you. God exactly, that's exactly what God wants. God often plants us or sows us in situations of overwhelming despair so that they or we will look to Him alone. Hudson Taylor said this, he said, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. We need God. But it, also, it often takes us getting to a place in our life where we cannot rely on our own strength. We cannot rely on our own power, our own wit, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own this and that, our own money. And we get to a place where we just realize, God, I cannot take another step without you. And that is what God wanted Israel to to be. He wanted them to be to a place where they realize all we need is the Lord. The second observation is when weak people, weak people experience God's strength, great joy results. Look with me in verse number seven. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as though wine or through wine, yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I see the word rejoice twice, and I see the word glad. Even this joy that comes 
When God is is fulfilling these promises and these purposes, the joy that comes even through the trial. Think about this, church. Even through the midst of this trial that Israel is in, self-afflicted trial, even in the midst of their, their, their return to see their city ravaged and see things just decimated, they are having joy. But guess what else happens? Not only does mom and dad have joy and leaders have joy and adults have joy, but their children rejoice. Their children rejoices. Another generation. Joy. Remember, Israel is a joyful nation. It's a nation that sings praises and, and glory to God. They, they're a singing people. They're a joyful people. But yet, I don't know where do I hear them singing. But it will return. Joy will return. You know you can have joy in the midst of pain. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You can have joy in the midst of all kinds of things. Why? Because our joy is not in circumstances. Our joy is in the Lord. Your circumstances today may be dismal. Your circumstances today may be bleak. They may be bad. They may be terrible. But guess what? You can have joy. Why? Because joy comes from the Lord. It's a heart that knows God. So God's promises. God's promised abundant blessings for His people. We, we kind of see that in verses 2 through verse 12. I mean, these are prophetic. These are, uh, He even says it in verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in His name, saith the Lord. These are so wonderful. These are promises for Israel, but application we can apply today as well. Let's not serve other gods. When God seems so distant and when God just seems to be quiet and when God seems to be maybe not answering the way that you want, don't turn to something else. Keep turning to Him. Can we go back to verse 1? I told you there's two messages in one chapter. There's really many more. But God spoke in, in a special way through His Word. As I was studying this text the last few weeks, and I just kept going back to verse 1, it seemed like I had to, Brother Joseph, just because it was just like God, that heart, He just penetrated His Word into my heart, and I just could not get away from the very first word. Ask. That's what He wanted Israel to do. Ask. And that's what He wants you to do. Ask. So God's promises, number two, should motivate us to pray. To pray for rain. Not so much in a physical sense. We have plenty of rain in the south lately. But often when we want to be negative about rain, I start thinking about other parts of the world that would love to have rain. So before we start getting real negative and tired of the rain, let's think about our brothers and sisters across the world that don't get rain, but maybe once or twice a year. Rain in the Bible is a sign of abundant blessings outside of uh, the flood, and we know that God promised that He'd never do that again. And so rain is always kind of a picture of in the Bible of, of uh, you'd see a drought and God would send a rain, a drought and God would send a rain. And we even see prophets uh, praying for rain. And we, we see rain in the Bible as a, as a picture of abundant blessings. And here's the Lord saying, 
ask for rain, the spring rain. Verse number 1, he said, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, meaning the spring rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. God promises. His promises should motivate us to pray. And I, I wrote down some things about prayer. And if you have a pen, you can, you can write them down. This is just how the Lord revealed prayer to me this week through His Word, as I'm going to speak to you a little bit this evening at, at 5 o'clock, and ha- we have been using our evening service for that. The first thing is this about prayer, because praying people are blessed people. The first thing is this, we should pray for God's promises because He commands us to pray. We should pray because God commands us to pray. Does He not? This is not a suggestion. Verse 1, do, do you read it any other way? He says ask. He did, not suge- he did not just say you can ask if you want. He didn't say you might want to ask. He says ask. The Lord taught us to pray. He said thy kingdom come. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 10. Praying for God's kingdom to come. When you pray that way, uh, what you're basically praying is, Lord, we want you to come back, establish your your earthly kingdom. And when he does, by the way, can I say, when he does, he's going to bring judgment to sin. Praying thy kingdom come. We we talked a little bit about that last week in the the evening verse. And the Lord has taught us to pray, then, then wants us to pray. And he wants to tell us how to pray. He teaches us in Matthew chapter 6. So number one, we should pray because he commands us to pray. But number two, we should pray to acknowledge our dependence on him. When we pray, we're acknowledging our dependence upon the Lord. See, you're, you're, when you pray, your Father knows what you need before you even ask. Matthew uh, chapter number 6 it is, and I believe verse number 8, that same chapter I alluded to just a moment ago, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. The Lord knows your need. And what he wants you to do is to acknowledge that he's the one that can give you the blessing. The reason that we don't pray is because we feel like we can fix our own problems. We don't need God until we think it's out of hand and then we use God as a 911 call. God, now I can't fix this one. I'm going to need you. No, you can't fix anything. We need God. And what's assuring to me is that God knows before we ever even call. He even has an answer before we ever call. He knows the need. Hey, your marriages need God. This church needs God. Your children needs God. Our nation needs God. We all need God. So let's just go ahead and acknowledge Him in prayer. We should pray and have dependence upon the Lord. Here's the third thing. We should pray. We should pray to remember the Lord as the source of our blessing. He's the source of our blessing. 
Notice verse 1, Zechariah, he, he says, Ask ye of the Lord. Then what else does he say? Rain. So where is rain coming from? The Bible says the rain is coming from the Lord. I'm sure if, if we had a scientist uh, or, or a biologist or, or someone who studies the, uh, the, how rain develops in the atmosphere and clouds and how we get precipitation and, and they explained it, I guarantee you that they could explain rain without ever mentioning God. But listen, we know that the Bible says that we cannot have rain without the Lord. Ask ye of the Lord rain. What are we doing when we ask? What are we doing when we pray? We're reminding the Lord or remembering that the Lord is the source of all blessings. It is God who makes the crops grow. It is God who sends the rain. It is God that provides. And when you realize that, that, that uh, prayer is acknowledging Him and God, uh, when I pray, uh, I'm remembering that God is the source of blessings. And, I, and by the way, church, I want God to bless me. And I want God to bless you. And listen, God will not bless you if you fail to bless Him. How do we bless God? We bless Him through prayer. Here's the fourth and final thing. We should pray for God's promises to realize the fulfillment of His purpose. To realize the fulfillment of His purposes. See, when we pray to God, we do not even realize all that we're actually asking God to do. We pray, sometimes we're praying for a specific thing. We're praying, God, do this for me. And what we don't realize is, is God is going to do this, 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 and this so you can have that. Amen. We don't realize that when we ask God for things, we, we don't even realize that what is His divine purpose. We may need rain now, but we also need strength. We, we also need help. We also need saved. We also need restored. Lord, we, we need rain now, but God, we need some other things too. And God says, well, I'll send the rain, but I must restore you first. There's a process. Church, don't miss this. There's a process. In order for you to have rain, maybe God says you need strength more than rain right now. Amen? You need strength more than rain. You need restored more than rain. You know, we think we need rain, right? You ever been to a place where you're like, God, I know what I need. I, I know what I need. I'm living this life. I don't have to have anybody tell me what I need. No, 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 no. You don't know what you need. God knows what we need. And when God sends that answer to you, here's what we ought to do. Rejoice. He's answered prayer. It may not be the way that you like it. It may not be the way you wanted it. And it may not even be the way you dreamed it up. But God knows. And He may give you restoration. He may give you supply. He may give you uh, salvation. He may give you all these things. And then He'll send the rain. 
that God's orders are always best. God is teaching me these things through prayer. I've prayed for specific things for years, and guess what God has done? He has actually rearranged those answers. And some things I've prayed for a long time, other things came first that was better than what I prayed for. And then I got to what I prayed for, but it was so much better because God's timing is best. And Israel asked for rain. These are purposes. Can I just say in conclusion, the church is in spiritual warfare. Are we not? I know we are. As the pastor of this church, I can sense it. I see it. We're in spiritual warfare. I see our families, church, I see our families and our marriages fighting, not fighting each other, but they're just fighting uh, the flesh and the world and the devil and they're fighting uh, to stay uh, married and they're fighting to stay in love and they're fi- I see children that the devil is fighting for and, and we're in a warfare. I see churches that are just going through wars because why? This is, is warfare right now. Our nation is in a spiritual warfare. Basically good versus evil. We see that on every front. If you don't see that, you're blind. You're not, you're not looking. We are in a spiritual warfare. But church, can I say, we are in spiritual warfare with a peacetime mentality. The reason we're not praying is everything's fluffy here. Everything's good here, preacher. My marriage has never been better. My, my children right now are behaved and, and uh, it seems like I'm doing all right. I'm going to church. It seems like my job, I've got a job. It just seems like everything's good. Hold on a second. Where is the warfare mentality? We're commanded in Scripture to be sober, be vigilant. For our adversary, the devil, we have an adversary. What? We got an adversary? Not in peacetime. This ain't peacetime. Peace time's coming. We're in a warfare. I read something this week in dealing with prayer that I want to read to you by John Piper. He said, But what I have millions of Christians done, they have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? The walkie-talkie he's referring to is what God has given us for war. During our, our, our war, we can talk to God. What are they doing with that? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in the cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow. To the den. We're not praying because we are at ease. We don't realize that we are in war. And when you realize that we need God, we need God today. Church, look at me. We need God today, but we also need God tomorrow. And we need God Tuesday. 
And we need God Wednesday. And we need God every day. Your children, listen. You need to pray for your children. Do you realize if you're not praying for your children, maybe nobody's praying for your children? You ever realize that, mom and dad? If you're not praying for your children, maybe nobody's praying for them? How sad would it be that nobody goes to God for your kids? Why do you think God gave you children? To raise and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Not to take them to soccer practice. Not to put them in travel ball. Not to uh, uh, put them in a nice school and get an education. He gave you to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I am preaching right now. America's God is sports. You'll see that tonight. Church is canceling church to watch a Super Bowl. Fathers living through, vicariously through their children, trying to get them to make the big time. When we should be raising them to be warriors for the Lord. It would make me more proud to see my son serve Jesus than to run a, a ball through a, across a line and kick a ball through a goalpost, put a ball in a basketball hoop. Hey, I love sports and I do. And you know what? I love it. But when it comes to Jesus, I see those idols in our nation. I see these idols in our home. I see those idols in our church. And we, even when we come to church, we just come together and we'll start talking about things. Listen, we ought to talk about Jesus and what He's doing and what He's done and how much we need Him. Instead of talking about some guy that makes more money than we'll ever know who never died for your sins, who we certainly don't pray to. Church, our priorities are wrong. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel, their priorities were wrong. And it cost them dearly. And God says, it may have cost you, but I have a plan for you. I'm not going to leave you there. Ask. Ask. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text, the word. It's powerful. We thank you for... Your love, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary. For your victory over death, hell, and the grave. And we're thankful that we can come together and pray and worship, sing and preach, testify of your goodness.